This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm David Moten, the author and narrator of Mindframe, and with me, as is always the case, is Brent Van Tassel, a producer extraordinaire and co-founder of the Podbelly Podcast Network. Um, we are brought to you primarily by um, El Yucateco Hot Sauce, and I always want to stop and say something about them. Um, they're not just our uh, sponsors because they're paying us. They're our sponsors because we genuinely love the product, and we have a great relationship with the people at El Yucateco. Uh, one thing that I want to suggest is any of you who like uh, cooking shows, if you like cooking channels on YouTube, um, check out El Yucateco's YouTube uh, channel. They've got great recipes. Um, I myself am a vegan. They've even got some vegan recipes on there, different salsas, different stuff that you can make. But uh, whether you want to get your barbecue on or make a nice vegan dish, there's some really cool YouTube videos from the El Yucateco channel. So track them down, subscribe, uh, give them a like, um, and you'll find some great recipes um, in the making and good ways to make sure you get El Yucateco into your belly. And speaking of bellies, we are a Podbelly original. Um, if you're into podcasts and you want to find some other great shows and some instructional information on how you can launch a podcast or get your podcast noticed, then go to podbelly.com. And as always, we want to thank our patrons um, from patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast. Uh, you support us and uh, it's very helpful financially, obviously, um, to ship stuff and get server space and all the equipment is never cheap. Uh, so that really helps us to offset those costs. And more than that, it gives us sort of a, a network of people who we know um, are out there and listening and it encourages us uh, even in, in lean times to make sure that we're still working, working on the project. So um, if you're interested in getting the sit down episodes for every single episode, it's sort of a second podcast about the podcast. I guess it's a meta podcast uh, with ourselves and Zach Smith. Then go to patreon.com. Um, if you, if you enjoy everything that you're hearing on uh, Mindframe, then the sit downs are, you know, they're usually about 45 minutes a piece, but they're full on podcast episode just about the content. So uh, check it out. So this chapter, chapter 23, we come back to Grim Bolivar. Um, so far, everything we've seen about Grim has all been one long day in the life of Grim Bolivar back in the year 2136. And uh, we revisit him. Um, last we saw he and Penny were fleeing from uh, Rooney and the deviant meeting that they stumbled into in a, in a dirty bar. And uh, they were running through the streets trying to find their way back to the plaza. So uh, where are they now? Let's uh, give it a pause and take a listen. So thank you for tuning in and welcome back to Mindframe. Chapter 23, Grim Bolivar, 2136. They walked, hands unfolded, until they were back at the train. Grim remembered the way. He was good with urban directions, and Penny seemed to trust his pathfinding. The whole way back, Grim kept expecting to see an electrified Mo-Yu fly from its protective spot above the plaza, to see a platoon of GPF officers storm the streets to bust the deviant meeting he had just accidentally attended in a crappy bar. Or to be honest, rescue Grimm from his own dangerous wanderings. But the streets remained calm, and the squid never left its hovering perch above the plaza. At the train platform, Penny took Grimm's other hand in her own and leaned into him, pressing her face against his chest. They stood, absorbing each other's warmth until the train came. They engaged in a level of get-to-know-you small talk they'd never had the social luxury of engaging in. Twenty minutes after they boarded, they realized they were on the wrong train. Way to go, Penny teased, elbowing Grimm in the ribs. 
She didn't have the skills to play at his family's level. Her face instantly betrayed her own nerves. She had teased this powerful man and instantly regretted it, not knowing if he was a man to be teased. I didn't know you wanted to go back to the plaza, Grimm said. I was taking you straight to the beach so we could swim to Atlantis and release the downvoted and enslaved with a pocket knife and a pack of breath mints. You have breath mints, Penny said in a tone suggesting that Grimm needed them badly. And they both laughed. He bumped his shoulder into her shoulder, and she bumped back. They sat through a few more stops to reach a transit hub, then got on a different colored rail that would take them back to the plaza. They got to that hub with seconds to spare and had to sprint to catch the new train. Again, Penny was faster and kept pulling Grimm's hand, saying, Come on, and don't make me miss this. When they sat down in the empty car, they both laughed with the adrenaline of the sprint making them a bit euphoric. A stop later and an older woman joined them in their empty car. She had headphones in and closed her eyes once she sat down. Penny and Grimm stared ahead at the captivating sight of the Mo Yu in full charge. He tried to imagine the sheer terror the old resistance must have felt as one of these would drift down from the heavens during a battle and signal the day was done. It was alarmingly beautiful, fierce with the recursive electrical current stretching out tentacles, just like the squid it took its name from in old Chinese. The thing fed itself with its own power, an erratic orb of blue-white voltage looping back upon its body, a technological Ouroboros that finally figured out how to eat its own tail. As they got off the train, two GPF officers seemed to be waiting for them to disembark at the plaza. One said, Good evening, Mr. Bolivar. Are you heading to the car or back inside this evening? You need anything from inside? Grim asked Penny. Um, yes, pretty much all my stuff is in there. Grim pointed to the door, and one GPF fell behind as the other moved ahead and opened the door for them. This time there was no conversation about a guard detail. It felt very much like the security was not optional. The GPF fell in tow and followed them, lest Grim jump on a train during their watch a second time. They made their way through the darkened main hall of the plaza. The only sound was the trickle of water from a fountain, their footfalls on the tile floor, and the gentle crackle and hum of the charged lances the GPF wore on their backs. About one store before Penny's shop, one of the GPF fell into a sentry position. And when Penny and Grimm stopped to unlock the art store, the other officer moved ahead by a store to take guard there. Penny looked at Grimm and made a wide-eyed look, mouthing, Alrighty then. She held the handle of the accordion bars that covered the front of the shop, and the ping indicated she had access. The bars slid up, and the lights came to low in the shop. Just let me grab my things. I bolted out of here to catch that train so I wouldn't miss our meeting. I left everything back here, she said, as she slipped into the rear of the shop where customers couldn't normally go. Grimm stood and looked at the art. There were about 20 pieces, most of them contemporary, but some were pre-war, and at least one was a little bit famous. Grimm heard Penny opening and closing a few metal drawers and slipped into the back of the shop himself. It was a small, bare stock room. There were some art pieces there being framed and a few still in shipping crates. There was also a large metal cabinet that she was closing up. It was full of supplies, paints, brushes, cleaner, pencils, crayons, palettes, and any number of canvas tools Grimm couldn't quite name. I didn't know you sold supplies here. I thought it was just the paintings. Oh yes, we do, but they're expensive, actually. 
a flaw in the chit system that's supposed to be discussed by the governor's enclave at some point. A tube of paint counts as either one aesthetic chit or one work tool chit, depending on how you want to buy it. Either way, you could buy a power drill or a complete painting for the price of one tube of titanium white. Most artists can't afford it and have to make do with alternatives or make their own. Well, the Bolivar House wants to buy all of it. All of what? Penny asked. Everything. All of your supplies, your paintings that are ready to be sold, those canvases, we'll buy them. Certainly we can make sure they get to the right hands. And maybe we can say something to a governor or two to make sure this gets remedied and the true cost comes out. This must be stifling art for the entire generation. It is. It'll be an expensive purchase, a lot of aesthetic chits. Grimm took on the persona of a typical customer at the plaza and said, I'm sure I'm good for it, miss. If you could just ring me up. Grimm read her mental states. She started in shock and shifted to being uncertain that he knew how much it would all cost. He continued and said, I know a young artist who works selling art by day who could use these supplies. Her moods continued to morph. She was suddenly thrilled and then, at the end, guilty. Why did she deserve such a gift? I told you I owed you one penny for my grandmother's paintings. Here, he said as he brought his phone up on his skinter face and called Mr. Hayward. It rang once and the plaza's concierge answered. Mr. Bolivar, is everything all right? Yes, thank you for asking. Are there any porters still here in the truck bay? I've just made a large purchase and would love to get it sent to Prospect this evening. Uh, there is one man still on the premises. He's waiting for his train, but otherwise off duty. Would you like me to contact him? Yes, please. Tell him we'll need the delivery to Prospect and we can work out payment for his overtime once he's at my family's property. Please make sure he fully knows what that means. I'm certain he will agree to the extra work. I'm setting a cargo truck aside in his name for the evening. Will there be anything else for the moment, Mr. Bolivar? A coffee or a wine, perhaps? No, thank you, Hayward. I hope you get off work soon. I'm just closing up, Hayward said. Grimm knew he meant that he would be able to go home once he knew that no one with the surname Bolivar was interested in the plaza for the rest of the night. Within five minutes, a muscular Latino man named Tito was there with a large powered cart. He eagerly shook hands with Grimm and Penny and he regularly shot Penny looks of shock when he thought Grimm couldn't see what was happening. They obviously knew each other from plaza work, and Tito just as obviously knew who Grimm was. Grimm and Penny helped him get everything on the truck. Once Tito slid the truck shut, and they stood in the cold mist of the loading bay, Grimm said, Park at the main gate at Prospect, Tito. They'll let you in from there, and you'll meet with a man named Benson. He'll handle the unloading and your payment. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I'm not a sir, Tito. I never served in the armed forces or GPF. Just grim. And Tito, ask for more than you normally would. Ask for something you can't otherwise get. You understand that, don't you? I do, Grim. Thank you, Mr. Bolivar. Penny. He got in the truck and Grim heard the single click of the engine silently engaging as it slid up the loading ramp and off into the night. Grim asked the air, What's the quickest way back to my car? A GPF officer walked right into the light of the loading bay, making Penny start with a sudden fright. Right this way, Mr. Bolivar. The officer led them through the parking lot, and Grimm counted the footfalls of three others walking behind them. The air was either a light with sea mist or the first drops of a fine cold rain. He reached down to hold Penny's hand, and she was reluctant at first. Grimm wondered why, assumed it was the presence of the GPF. They got to Grimm's car, and the officers fell back a distance. He opened the door for Penny, and then got in. 
Warm air started to blow from the vents and the car's systems all booted. Some sort of current or force of physics ran through the windshield and repelled all the water up and over the car's hood. Get us to the freeway, he told the car, and it slid from the parking lot to the road and on toward the highway. Are you okay with this? Grim asked. This gift? I'm not sure how much of the art you actually want. I don't know what will fit in your place. I thought I'd display it all at Prospect and you could come up on your first day off and pick what you wanted. Any art supplies you don't want can be given to some school friends of yours or uh, someone we find, maybe. I don't work tomorrow, actually, Penny said. Grim knew she was lying, planning to call in sick or something. He forgot how good his family was at duplicity until he was faced with a normal citizen of WorldGov. Excellent, Grim said with a clap. Let's get you home and I can come pick you up in the morning. Maybe an early lunch? Mm, what about you already picked me up and we make it a late dinner? I mean tonight. I mean, you'd take me home tonight for tonight's dinner. Dear God, that sounded so much better in my head. Penny hit her face with her hands and Grim laughed. Smooth criminal, she said in mock defeat. Grim told the car to head home to Prospect, and soon they were being lifted by the strange tripod on-ramp and placed on the highway. He was running through some things to say to make small talk and get a conversation going when she reached over and grabbed the side of his face with her soft palm. He could feel her skin pull against the stubble that had grown there. She turned his head toward him, and they kissed as the deadly arcing light of the Mo-Yu fell dark and the hushed peace filled the midnight heavens of San Pedro. Grim sat at the small wet bar on the left side of the loft. The loft was a sacred space to the Bolivar family and all of Prospect, the space where his grandmother would come and paint and drink gin and lose herself. It was where she would escape the reality of the hard world, the rebuilding of America, the horrors of the war she'd experienced as a little girl, and the radical changes ushered in by the world vote. Though currently hugged by the dark of a rainy coastal night, the loft was normally a place of light. All glass, the loft sat atop a tall stone buttress in the center of Prospect, originally meant to be a lighthouse and a lookout over the ocean. Technology had turned such things as lighthouses into nostalgia, however, since designs for the spatial scanning apparatus had been beamed down to the messengers early on. The naked eye, or a beacon of light, were feeble things compared to the radical power and accuracy of an SSA that could read underwater topography as easily as identify a horsefly or a skyscraper. All of the Bolivar's housing had been built around the lighthouse, just downhill from the functioning logistics hub that was the rest of the Prospect campus. The century-old tower served as a private museum hung with grandmother's paintings and a long-extinguished lighthouse lamp the size of a small car sitting in the center. Grimm, his mother, and Elise were the only Bolivars who would visit this place, the sensitive ones. Its isolation from the rest of Prospect was exquisite. Its view of the Pacific, the eternal stretch of the blue horizon, and waves breaking against the shore was unparalleled. It was the perfect place to think, to read, to take a coffee, to bring a lover. Penny sat at the bar eating strawberries dipped in chocolate, each time she bit one, she moaned in pleasure and slapped her hand on the bar. She'd long since stopped asking, where'd you get these, about the food and the drink Grimm had sent up. The two of them snacked and stared at a wall of paintings. The center wall of the loft, where the elevator shaft ran, was covered in all the paintings from Penny's art shop. 
And now, as the ancient Tompion long clock chimed 3 a.m., Grimm and Penny sat eating a spread of leftovers from Yale's party and talking about the art. Grimm had seldom in his life felt like a moment was quite so perfect. The excitement of being chased by an illusory foe, rabble-rousing with rousing rabble, a rainy night, wonderful food, and a beautiful woman. Know what I just noticed? Penny asked, putting down her strawberry to better point at the paintings. That some of these are really quite awful, Grimm said. Penny giggled and elbowed him for being a snob. Every single one of them is devoid of people. They're just places. There's a lovely lane in presumably Paris. There's an abstract skyscraper at night. I rather like that one, Grimm interrupted. There's the San Diego Frost Crater, the Grand Canyon, even the lake scene. It has a cabin, some boats, but nobody fishing or on the shore. The artists all paint worlds lacking human beings. Grimm thought it was a notable point, and he considered it as he took his last sip of champagne. He conceded, maybe it's the aliens. Humans aren't important anymore to an artist. We're a dead subject. Maybe the artists are saying, we've had quite enough of humans, thank you very much. Hurry up and get to the tentacled space beasts. Why did you do all this? Penny asked, picking the strawberry back up and delicately biting it to the root with her near-perfect teeth. He paused. His mind slipped into Bolivar mode. He thought of two or three different ways to spin this, to insulate himself, to wind up for a future pitch. But he let it all go. Instead, and against his every instinct, he said simply, For you. And why did you do all this for me? Grimm paused again. He wanted to tell her the truth, yet Penny still didn't know he'd been stalking her half the night before they got to the bar. Grimm popped the cork from a champagne bottle and poured them each a fresh glass. His head was cocked sideways in thought, and Penny didn't interrupt. Finally, he handed her a glass, clinked its crystal rim with his own, and said, Before I came into the store, I watched you standing there staring at your wall of paintings. It was like you were imploring that one of them could force your soul to stir, or that you could jump into one and away from Earth as it really is. I saw an ember in you at the shop this morning. A cold ember. The wind could drag a glow from it, but it was all but dead. And then we talked art when you gave me my grandmother's painting, and you transformed. You were excited and glowing. Grim downed his champagne in one go and let himself swim in its chilled warmth. He said, I followed you, you know. I went to the plaza to give some poor girl an academy permit so she wouldn't be forced to a deviant labor camp, and I found myself walking to your shop. It was shuttered, but I caught a glimpse of you, and I followed the hem of your dress to the train and through the alleys until you ended up at that bar. And then you knocked me over. So, I bought you all these paintings because I want something to spark that ember inside of you and ignite your soul, and I want to be able to touch it, even if only with my fingertips, and feel what heat it shines. Penny was looking at her feet through an excruciating silence. Grimm finally broke it by saying, Prospect... Play some music, something to make it slightly less awkward in here. A song started. It was a slow thing, full of synthetic instruments and false drums. It sounded to Grimm to be from the 1980s or 1990s. A man with a deep, incredibly smooth voice started to sing doo-doo-doo-doos instead of lyrics. Penny looked very emotional. Her cheeks were flushed, and she looked like she was about to cry. She started to talk and choked on her words, 
She turned her head away and drank a long drag of champagne. The lyrics in the song progressed until the suave man was singing the words, Penny lover, my heart's on fire. Penny lover, you're my one desire. Tell me, baby, could this be true, that I could need someone like I need you? Grimm scoffed and looked toward the ceiling where he always somehow envisioned the consciousness of Prospect to reside. Jesus Christ, really? He said to Prospect, who he suddenly suspected was trying to be a wingman. Penny thrust her champagne glass down to kiss him so quickly that the flute missed its mark and fell from the bar, spilling on the antique wooden floor and peppering their ankles with fizz. It was a long kiss, filled with alleys and dress hems and paintings with no people in them, and her mouth was hot with breath. After the kiss, Penny stood from the bar stool and put a finger to Grimm's lip and made him stand back in obeisance. She peeled off her bland clothes, a sweater, a white cotton shirt, a skirt, and a slip. She prepared to remove her bra and garter and stockings, but Grimm grabbed her hands. She was the finest piece of art in the room. The pure milk of her skin and the dark black of her stockings was a razor of innocence and deviance. Grimm was captured, stepped back to see it all. She removed her panties, revealing a wild tangle of stark red pubic hair that was never trimmed for anyone's sake. It was an elemental and wild image, and it pulled Grimm a step closer. Penny finally removed her bra, revealing the most perfect breasts Grimm had ever seen. He didn't know he preferred a certain shape, a certain cup size, but whatever those preferences matured to be in him after a life of one-night stands with countless house courtesans, these were the breasts that he'd been building up to. If he were a genius in some crazy sexual genetics lab, he couldn't have created one more perfect. They were pale, just like the rest of Penny's body, but they were also covered in a dusting of freckles. The ginger nature of her being graced them with little dots of dark on the top of each breast where the cleavage would show if she ever dressed in an alluring enough manner to show them. But she didn't, Grimm realized. He was one of the lucky chosen of Earth to ever see these freckles. Now you, Penny said. Eyes turned to hard slits of focus, eager for what she'd see herself. She left the garter belt and stockings in place. Grimm couldn't get his clothes off fast enough. He unbuttoned his shirt, slid its fine fabric in a pool around his stockinged feet. He took off his t-shirt and tossed it toward the bed. Next, his belt slithered off and was flung to the couch, and then his trousers dropped, and he clumsily, eagerly stepped out of them. Grimm knew that nothing about his striptease or the body waiting for the encore after could have possibly been sexy to anyone, but he was wrong. Penny's eyes grew wide, her lips parted, and she stepped forward slowly. She touched his stomach, danced her fingertips to the burn scars from when the McGleechy family held him in chains, hit him with electricity, and put cigars out on him. She slunk behind him, her hands touching each of the other scars that blossomed on his back from where he was whipped at that same torture session. She gently soothed the marks from his stab wounds in his side, the shotgun pellets in his leg, and even the larger scar where he was shot with a pistol while he was a wilder, younger man. She tracked a single line, a constellation of pain, injury, duty, and folly, until she was in front of him again. She lightly grabbed his fingers and walked towards the bed. He was firmly in tow. She lay on the bed, the pale of her skin making her merge with the pure white silken sheets, 
the stockings like two landing strips leading Grimm. Grimm kissed her mouth, a body on a body, a feeling like swimming, and she grabbed him, guided him with a moan. Grimm's body took over, made the moves a body knew to do. Gentle thrusts, harsh grinds, a circular rhythm of pleasures for both of them. Within a minute, he was ready. The perfection of her young body, the sea air, the stockinged legs, her silk melting his machismo and making him feel like a 15-year-old boy who couldn't hold it. Grim doubled down, grabbed both of Penny's delicate hands and gripped hard. Her hands were anchors, keeping him in the moment, and the motions continued, her pelvis matching his until he could feel her thighs tighten, her breath quicken. Penny's nails bit into Grimm's palms as a spasm overtook her body, and Grimm met release just as she said, I'm, and then went sub-vocal into a deep-chested moan. He collapsed on top of her, belly on belly, their breathing matched. He smelled the simple shampoo in her hair. His eyes were buried in tangles of perfect red, his chest compressing those perfect breasts, and within moments, he slept in unison with Penny. Grim awoke to movement on the bed. He felt a vacancy of warmth and felt for Penny. Something had been set down, a tray, he realized, with a loaf of bread, melon, and grapes on skewers, and some smoked tofu. Two upside-down rock glasses and two upside-down wine glasses were next to the food. Penny had set the tray down and was heading back to the kitchen area of the loft. It was still night, but not for much longer. The rain had stilled, and Prospect was still playing love songs from different eras. The dark of the ocean blew in through the open window in healthy puffs. Penny returned with a decanter of scotch in one hand and a bottle of wine in another. She still wore the black stockings, but had added Grimm's V-neck t-shirt to the ensemble, giving her that morning-after chic. I didn't know which would be better, she admitted, holding up both bottles before she set them on the nightstand. She sat, one leg curled under herself, and Grimm saw the freckles there on the tops of her breasts peeking out from under the V-neck. Just you, Grimm said, gently pulling Penny on top of him. She sat on him, her back against his chest, and he folded his arms around her stomach. That was amazing. Yeah, I was pretty good, Penny said, stretching over to pour two glasses of whiskey. She took a swallow and shuddered, not used to the unadulterated alcohol. Water, she said, making her throat sound far worse than it was and pointing to the glass of water on the opposite nightstand. Grim could barely reach it and had to wriggle a bit in doing so. Penny took a drink of water, cut the whiskey with the rest of it, and laid back on Grim after pulling her hair into a manageable tube instead of letting it cover his face. So you followed me when I got out of work all across town, she asked. Guilty, Grim said. So you are a total stalker, she said. I am, I must admit. This is the strangest and most expensive date I've ever been on, she said, pointing to the wall full of paintings with her whiskey glass. They both laughed. Grim asked, What took you to that deviant meeting? It looked like you didn't know where you were going on the way there. Oh, God, Penny said. The lightness of her tone suddenly turned dour. I don't want anyone to get in trouble. She says to a member of the illegal black market cartel that runs the entire American continent, Grimm said. No, I know. She took a sip of whiskey and slid away from him so she could turn to see his face. Her eyes came up from the glass to meet Grimm's. Her face turned red, and she said, 
It was your niece. My niece, Grimm said, sitting up as pieces of an elaborate puzzle fell together to show an image of him being a dupe. The bookstore in the morning, the broken-down maid sent to his quarters in the evening. They were well-executed things meant to get him to go back to the plaza that night. Elise's game wasn't to just get a pass for that girl Sophie. That was part of it, something Elise wanted for sure. The game was longer than that, though. It even involved the mysterious arrival of one of his grandmother's paintings, something Elise surely set up. The game was to get him to follow Penny and attend a deviant meeting, to get him to hear deviant rhetoric. Elise could lure him to such a meeting if he was chasing Penny. Grimm didn't realize he had a thing for her until this evening, but obviously he had a tell that Elise had exploited. Very well played indeed. Penny was completely oblivious to the schemes inside of schemes that all used her as a winch to haul the load. She said, Elise, yes, earlier today. She said some interesting people would be meeting up at that bar just after I got off work. To be honest, I only went because I thought she might be going, which I thought meant you might be going, and it would be fun to have a drink with you guys. Well, Grimm said, she played us both. Penny giggled to herself and said, she should see if she can get upvoted to become some sort of professional matchmaker. That was superb. Grimm realized he was being too stern. He was focusing on the scheme Elise had played out to perfection. His body had grown rigid. He was pissed off and his posture showed it. That wasn't the right state of being. He was here with Penny tonight, right now. He could deal with Elise in the future. He forced it all to relax, eased his face and tone and said, I think she wanted me to go to the bar with you. She knew I'd want to follow you. She knew you wanted to meet up with us. With you, Penny corrected, nudging his chest with her fist. With me, thank you. And that we'd both be at that deviant rally together. No way, is she a deviant? Penny asked. Grimm said, not to my knowledge, no. I know she has leanings. She hates the camps and the way the world vote exploits the unpopular, but who doesn't? Penny scoffed, you'd be surprised. Many people who visit my shop think it's just the pinnacle of human justice, a system that finally gets it right. The upvotes and downvotes are the best system ever devised to most people. That guy at the bar, she said uncertain. Rooney, Grimm said. Rooney. What do you call us, the other 97%? Penny paused and took another sip and set the glass on the table. The alcohol was having an effect on her. Her posture had loosened and her bones became less stiff. She laid against him and melded into Grimm's form more easily. He took a drink from his glass to better match her state. Penny asked, So you can just give away academy permits? Pretty much, yeah. We have a lot of them in the family. What we do, we trade vouchers and permits and chits for people and keep a little off the top. A fifth house. I'm laying half naked in a fifth house. Does that mean you're a mobster? No, nothing that glamorous. The European house, the Maglicis, they're the mobsters. They do what they do out of fear. An advocate, Shin, who oversees them, allows it. They tried to take out our continent about ten years ago. That's where I got all these, Grimm said, lazily pointing at his scars with his glass of whiskey. We aren't like that. We get what we get from helping people. Typically, we help the administrators, the GPF, and the Navy so they look the other way, but we conduct millions of trades every day with normal citizens. How many permits do you give out? Me, personally? That was my first. Since our war ended with the McGleeches a couple years ago, I tend to stay out of the family business. My brother Yale and his son run things. I lost my taste for it. 
You should, she said. Lose my taste for it? Give out permits. Be involved. Tonight, I'm sure you totally change the life of somebody. Sophia Arnez, Grimm added. Ah, I know her. I'm sure you changed the life of Sophia Arnez by giving her an academy permit. What was the story there, she asked, sounding a bit woman jealous more than genuinely curious. Grimm said, hell, I don't know. Elise took me to the bookstore and the woman who works there freaked out on me. Sophia was her daughter and Elise says she knows her and vouched for her and told me to get her a permit from my brother and give it to her. Her boyfriend Hugo was a deviant, so she was getting downvoted and sent to the camps unless we intervened. We could have just orchestrated an upvote for her, but she tested high in the academy trials, so Elise wanted her sent there. How do you orchestrate an upvote? There are millions of people who owe us favors, who like us and what we do for them, and we have certain people in the family who are very closely monitored on all the social networks. Public relations people, I guess you could call them. If they upvote someone or move towards passing a law, they have millions of followers who do the same thing just out of respect, or even out of a contract they agreed to when we got someone a better house or a different job or whatever their thing was. Penny took a big inhale and seemed pleased with the scent she caught. She said, You could do so much good. Not really. It's pretty restricted. Very political. What you did for me tonight, the paintings, this evening... It was nothing to you, and you changed my entire life. I have a bag full of rare art supplies and can work in earnest like I haven't since art school. Even if this was a one-night stand, not, Grimm said. Okay, even if you died in a horrible war with the Europeans, I'd have tonight as one of the most special memories all the way to my deathbed. Sophie Arnez, you saved her. I know her mother because we're all plaza rats. She'll sing the praises of Graham Bolivar for the next three generations of her family. You could do so much for so many. Maybe so, Grimm said, feeling the late hour and the whiskey and the warmth of Penny's body draw him towards sleep. But before you do anything, you have to do one other thing tonight, Penny said. What's that? Me, again, please, she said, wriggling out of Grimm's t-shirt. And with that, we see schemes within schemes inside the Bolivar family, as Elise has played Grimm um, into a position that she wanted him in, and frankly, a position that he kind of wanted himself in as well, being with Penny. But uh, we'll see how it continues to play out in future Grimm chapters. So as always, if you like what you're listening to, um, you can check out my uh, other book, 181 Pine. You can find it by going to mindframepodcast.com and go to the merchandise store. You can find that book and you can find the the fiction and short stories of Zach Smith, the co-host of The Sit Downs. You can find cool merchandise. If you like the show, grab yourself a t-shirt, a coffee mug, whatever the case may be. Um, It's all there on mindframe.com. Also, don't forget to go to podbelly.com to find a really cool list of uh, other podcasts you might want to listen to. They're not all fiction. Um, like this. They have a whole variety of different topics and tones and and so forth. Uh, One of them is Robots for Eyes, which is a really uh, funny kind of raw podcast from the UK where they do a research dive and and talk about some stuff. And then also uh, Rock and Roll Beer Guy. So check both of those out. Um, You will not be disappointed. There's some pretty rock solid podcasting going on there. Um, as always, um, another way to support us and show us love that doesn't cost you a, a single uh, penny 
is to uh, follow us and like us and share us on social media. That's really the bread and butter of how to grow a podcast, whether it's Mindframe, whether it's another podcast that you like, um, a couple of things you can always do to show love for whatever podcast you like. One is go to uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts and uh, leave a, a good review. A nice five-star review goes a, a long way for any podcast that you're listening to. But second, just do likes and shares. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, do some posts there. Um, it's more organic, and that's really the way that that a podcast can grow itself. So on Facebook, you can find us at Mindframe Podcast. On Twitter, you can find us at Mindframe Pod. And on Instagram, you can find us at The Mindframe Podcast. So um, as always, thanks for listening. We will see you with another episode next time. And remember, the lariat is closing. <laughs>